Uh, We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 today. We're actually going to make it all the way through that chapter. I know, I know, it's, uh, I can't believe it, believe it when I see it, but we are, 17 verses, going to make it all the way through, Um, and I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there as you are. Let me just, let me just kind of set the stage, so as we think about this, right, this this week I was confronted with the reality that uh, Christmas is upon us. I know that I'm not somebody that watches a calendar. You know that if you know, if you know me, you know how calendar challenged I am. You, you understand that this is a, but, but it is almost impossible when you're flipping through Facebook and people are already telling you it's time to decorate for Christmas and we haven't even had Thanksgiving yet. And then uh, I, 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 was, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine uh, this week and he's already put up his Christmas lights. He's already turning them on, already lighting up the neighborhood. He's excited that he's the first person in his neighborhood this year that has his Christmas lights up. And then I was asked, what do you want for Christmas? It happens every year and I'm grateful for it. I love getting gifts. Don't, don't mistake what I'm about. I mean, I like being asked this question, but it always puts you in this place of, well, what, what do I need? Like what? What do I even ask for? What could I possibly ask for? Well, as I sat and pondered on that, it was really in the study of Ecclesiastes that it began to kind of switch a little bit. That question that I hear every year about what do you want for Christmas led me to begin to think about what it was like for Solomon when God approached him in a dream, appeared to him in a dream and says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. He didn't say it exactly like that. Essentially, what would you have? Now, I know my wife, Amy, asking me on behalf of her mom what I want for Christmas is slightly different than the universal creator, like the God of all the universe. It's a little different than than hearing, what do you want for Christmas? But I was struck with the reality of, if I had the access, if I had the opportunity to ask God for whatever I wanted, what would, what, what would even make the short list, right? What would be on the list? Well, you know the story. I, I'm certain you probably are familiar with the story. Solomon asked for wisdom. David tells us as, as David is about to die and hand off his, his throne to his son Solomon, he tells us in 1 Chronicles uh, 29 that, that Solomon is young and inexperienced. This is a kid about to take the throne of Israel, and somehow Solomon has enough wisdom to ask for more wisdom. He answers God, look, this is a, this is a vast kingdom. This is an important work that you're doing that you've given me to do. I need knowledge, and I need wisdom. And it's really that, that wisdom that became, became the foundation of his time as a king. It, it became the foundation of the passages, the, the stories, the the points that Solomon's been making all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Consider back in chapter 2 as Solomon is thinking about wealth or or wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and work, and he's saying all of these things lead to vanity, to futility. Over and over and over, he tells us that it was through wisdom that he made these observations. This wisdom that God had given him enabled him to see that wisdom, wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and work they, they, don't, they don't help us in death. They end in futility. It's wisdom that he makes his observations from when he begins to consider the sovereign work of God in the world, a, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up. It's, it's wisdom that, that enables him to make the observations that God is doing all of these things to make everything beautiful in its time. 
And it's truly wisdom that's been at the heart of this third section uh, that, that starts at the end of chapter 6 and now ends in chapter 8. He's been speaking a lot about wisdom. Well, let's just see what he has to say. Beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, the, the scripture reads, Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will not will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and just and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will the wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed... This is a wise observation. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt. Speaking of evil authority. He continues, verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does, not, uh, or, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know, another observation for us, I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through, all, through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Will you pray with me? Well, Father... We need your help. We've already read that the wisdom of the world is foolishness and in light of your wisdom. We need your help to understand your word. We need your spirit to bring us into truth. So I ask for that now. That through the preaching of the word, that your, your, your power, your presence, your wisdom would be made known. And that your people would be made wise. See things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
wisdom, its benefits and its limitations. This is Solomon's focus here. Now, we might prefer to, 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 to skip past the, the opening questions and the ending statements. We might prefer to focus in on authority and, and teach about authority. We might prefer to focus on verses 10 through uh, 13, where there seems to be this injustice at play, where the righteous are getting what the wicked deserve and the wicked are getting what the righteous deserve. We might prefer to focus in on those things, but when you listen to the opening questions that highlight the benefits of wisdom and then listen to the, to the ending conclusion in verses 16 and 17 where we see the limits of wisdom applied, we begin to see that Solomon is referring to authority and to injustice and to, to fearing God and to joy in this life under the sun as points towards a bigger perspective. He's making a case for wisdom, for its benefits and for its limitations. I would summarize this, this, this way. God's gift of wisdom benefits us in this life under the sun. But wisdom alone can't provide what we need for life above it. God's gift of wisdom benefits us in this life under the sun, but wisdom alone cannot provide what we need for life above it. Being wise is better than being a fool. That's simple. But even wisdom can't solve our biggest problem. What comes next? So we shouldn't shy away from wisdom. Instead, we should seek it out. We, we should seek to grow in both wisdom and knowledge. James tells us in his letter to the church that if any of you lack wisdom, ask God for it and he will supply it. He's encouraging the people of God to seek out wisdom. But we also must, mustn't run to the, to the other extreme and then begin to depend on our wisdom to do what only God can do or to teach us what God has decided to keep hidden. We cannot depend upon our wisdom to make us more like God than he has already made us. We cannot expect our wisdom to make us independent or, of God or get to be able to be our own God. But isn't that what we tend to do? We seek wisdom not to make us more dependent upon him, but so that we can go and live our life apart from him, so that we can go and do what we want to do and understand the outcome, so that we can live apart from any kind of authority, so that we can exist as our own. Solomon warns us about that while encouraging us to ensure that we fight to know wisdom. Because being wise is better than being a fool. If we're going to see this, if we're going to understand this, and we're going to talk about wisdom today, then we have to define it. We have to be on the same page. We have to be thinking of it in the same terms. So what is wisdom defined? Well, what do you do when you need a definition of something? What's the first place you run to? Google, right? Like, I, just, I don't even have to wait for an answer anymore. I just pull out my phone, and I type it in, what is, and I look for the answer, and it's always, there's always an answer there. And this is the answer I came up with. This is the very first answer that I came up with. Uh, the ability, this is from dictionary.com, the, the, the authority on definitions, right? The ability to think and act, utilizing knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense, and insight. That's how it's defined. And then I got to thinking, probably best not to define my biblical understanding with Google. And so I thought, let's do a little, little better study, a little better 
uh, more informed study. And so I got to thinking about what's the Hebrew word for wisdom and, and, and how is it defined and how is it used. And, and so I'm not intending to, uh, you can find this out. It's as quick as a couple of clicks and a couple of little resources. You can find them online. But the, the, the Hebrew word is chokmah. And it's almost like, uh, the way it's pronounced, it's almost like Klingon speaking. They got that really hard, the uh, kind of clearing the throat sound at the beginning, chokmah. Anyway, it's a feminine noun, meaning wisdom, skill, experience, shrewdness. Its first use in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 31, and I love that it's, it's used here because we often isolate wisdom with this process of thinking, like this thought process. It's all a mental exercise. When we consider wisdom, it's all mental to us. Exodus 31 has actually got nothing to do with mental thinking or discerning things. It's all about technical skill. It's the word that God used when he said, after, after bringing Israel up out of Egypt and he frees them, they're at the base of Mount Sinai, he's entering into covenant with them, and he commands them to, to build the tabernacle, and he says, I'm calling out Bezalel and Oholiab, and he calls them out by name, and he says, I am going to make them wise, I'm going to give them wisdom to make all the things that I need made for the tabernacle. So just imagine, he, he said, okay, I'm going to give you knowledge in all this craftsmanship. I'm going to, I'm going to give you all the knowledge you need to, to work with metal. I'm going to give you all the knowledge you need to, to work with wood and with cloth. And I'm going to give you a, a layout, a, a blueprint of what this thing's supposed to look like. But he gave them no skill to actually carry it out. What they know had to be usable to them. There had to be skill along with it. I know how to sing. I don't really have a lot of skill and singing. That's why I do this and not what we just finished. I mean, I do it from there and I'm loud and I'm glad nobody's in front of me because you, would, you, would, you, you wouldn't appreciate that. But I, I don't really have skill. I've got knowledge, but no skill. I'm, I'm not wise in the way of music. There's an often quoted definition from Spurgeon that I think is also helpful that kind of finishes this off and caps it off, it's, it's this. Wisdom, I suppose, is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the more fools for what they know. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. If a person knows all about a subject but has no common sense in which to do with anything that they know, well, that's that's not a wise person. In fact, we know that, right? Like there's people who are book smart who have absolutely no common sense. They can't punch themselves, punch their way out of a paper bag. And we're like, oh, they know a lot, but they can't seem to do a lot. There's a disconnect. These people aren't wise. Solomon's saying that wisdom is a good thing. We should long to be wise. And to know how to use what we know to have skill, to have understanding, to have discernment. I've already given you the example of Oholiab and Bezalel, and, and, and then there's this, the example of Solomon. He asked for wisdom, and he got it. And, the, and the, maybe, the, maybe, maybe the best example of his wisdom demonstrated in the Scripture is from 1 Kings 3, that he was uh, brought a, a case. He was, he was having to decide between uh, two prostitutes who were claiming that one baby was, they, they were the, each the mom. Well, we know that can't possibly be. And so he, 
he sees through this and he says, okay, well, let's do this. Let's cut the baby in half and we'll give the halves to the, to the different women. And one of the women is like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't kill, don't hurt the baby. Just let her have him. And the other woman's like, oh, that's a great idea. Just give me, give me half. Solomon sees through the lies and he sees that the first woman is the mother of the baby. And so he says, you know what? Give the baby to, to the mom. He, 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 with wisdom, he's able to discern the truth of a situation. A bit more contemporary example, and, and maybe a little less, uh, well, obviously a little less biblical, but, but uh, back in World War II, the American and British, I came across this story this week, I thought it was hilarious, the American and British officers were arguing over when to have drinks at dinner. Just some, there's a war going on, and we're worried about when to have drinks at dinner. The American officers wanted drinks before, and the British officers wanted drinks at, after dinner, and uh, I don't know which is really proper or which is really right, but I, they brought this to who, he eventually became the prime minister of, of uh, the UK. His, his name is, I'm going to miss, miss it, Prime Minister Macmillan. I can't remember his first name. Didn't write it down. Doesn't matter. But he was in a position where they were asked him, you decide. So with wisdom, he seeks out a solution. This is what it was. Henceforth, we will all drink before meals in deference to the Americans and we will all drink after dinner in deference to the British. What a politician. You can see why he became the prime minister of the UK. He used wisdom. He had knowledge, and he applied it. He had a skill. In fact, it, it, it followed him, and, and he did rise through the ranks and become the prime minister. Solomon's point in this passage, the reason I'm sharing with you these examples, is because we need to see that wisdom is a benefit to us. It's right and good for us to long for wisdom. It's better to be wise than to be foolish. Now, you, 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 you may remember, and I, I want to highlight this, because wisdom doesn't always look at things from the exact same direction. Like, wisdom takes into account different perspectives. You might remember, back in Ecclesiastes, if you've been following us through the study, Solomon's already told us that being wise, having more wisdom leads to more vexation. It brings you trouble. It makes it, you, the, the thing is, the more you know, the more you understand, the more you're able to use your knowledge, you begin to understand that even wisdom in and of itself is futility. It can't defeat death. Everything comes to this point and dies, and I can't get past it. It just seems so futile, so meaningless, so empty, so brief. Why in the world do I know this? I wish I didn't know it anymore. And there's this vexation that comes. But the point he's making in this passage is it's still better to be wise. Wisdom is better than folly. Wisdom is better than foolishness. And he proves that point actually through verses, chapter 2 verses, uh, or, or I'm sorry, chapter 8 verses 2 through 15. He proves that point. Wisdom has benefit. And not, it's, I'm sorry, chapter 8 verse 1 through uh, 15. He proves that point. He shows us wisdom helps us navigate through difficult circumstances in a dangerous and an unjust world. It is, oh, look at verse 1. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? These are rhetorical questions that seemingly put people out who have wisdom and have an ability to discern and understand as it's elevating them a little bit. Who's like them? They're better than the normal folk. They're better than someone who's not wise. And then he says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. 
The, 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 the picture is that, that we smile instead of walking around frowning, that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, the countenance, the, 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 the view of our face that demonstrates the attitude of our hearts changed. It softened. He's saying it's better. And then he gives us examples of that. In, in, in um, chapter 8, verses 2 through 10, we begin to see how wisdom benefits us by enabling us to submit to authority. And he uses an example that when you consider the whole context of these verses, verses 2 through uh, 9, actually, it's not a good king. It's not a righteous king. It's a man who uses authority over man to his hurt, that abuses his authority. There appears to be a king who doesn't seek out what's good for others, but is in some ways self-serving and abuses his authority. But in wisdom, a person is able to see past these things, is able to navigate this situation, able to navigate through these difficult circumstances. The reality is, and we actually see it in three different ways, he points it out by the oath. In verse 2, he says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, I need to show you this just so that you can see it. God's oath to him is what the ESV has translated at. Now, you'll see a footnote there, item number 2. And when you go down to the footnote, it references the person's oath. The Hebrew is so unclear here that translators argue over whether it's God's oath to the king or whether it's the person's oath before God under the king. It's interesting to me because the ESV study Bible actually uses the footnote reference rather than the one that's in the text. And so I don't know why they didn't just, anyway, talk to the translators about that. But the reality is, as I read and studied, and I'm reading from a lot of different people, a lot of different perspectives, it seems to me the most most well-rounded explanation of this is our oath to uh, God as a king. In fact, you might Think of this in terms of we submit to governing authorities as an expression of of our submitting to God. We don't submit to someone simply because of who they are, but because we are committed to God, because we are seeking to honor our submission to him. This is a, a New Testament perspective as much as it is an Old Testament perspective. In fact, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, Paul writing to Titus, he's in Crete, organizing the church, raising up leaders, helping them to become healthy. He writes these words, remind them, the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. There's a call to submit oneself to the authorities above and to be a gracious people as you deal with, with your peers. But listen. Listen to how he qualifies it. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We used to be just like the people we're supposed to be gracious to. We used to be just like the kings and the rulers and the authorities that we're supposed to submit to. We used to be evil like them, but that doesn't change the fact that we're to submit to them. Then chapter, or, or 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter, writing to a church that's dispersed, that's scattered because of, of oppression and because of persecution that they had experienced, writes these words. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
He goes on a little bit, and then he says, at the close of his, his point, he says, honor everyone, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He's speaking to Christian people to submit to Caesar. And in the years to come, depending on when you place the, the writing of 1 Peter, I, I, I take a little earlier date, and, and, and I think it's before Nero, and the years to come is going to come a fiery trial. They are going to suffer in horrific ways, be used as, as, as uh, torches to light the streets as they're burned alive, impaled on stakes and burned alive, used as entertainment as they're fed to, living, uh, to, to animals alive in the Colosseum. They're, they are going to suffer violently, and yet, Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This is wisdom that is being handed down to us that starts, it's, it finds its foundation in the Old Testament scriptures. The, the idea, listen, listen, there, there are times and places in which we should protest. There are times and places in which we should stand up and speak back. Anytime you're commanded by the, by the governing authority to... to um, Disobey God, you have a responsibility to first obey God. Wisdom demonstrates, wisdom enables us to navigate when and where we do this. It helps us see the right time and right way in which to, in which to respond. It helps us know when we sit quietly and when we take a stand. We see an example of that in the book of Acts when John and Peter are, are proclaiming the gospel and they're told don't do it and they say, uh, we got to. And they end up arrested. But there are times. There, there's right times to submit even to an evil governing authority because we're submitting to the God who rules over that authority. And we're trusting him more than we're trusting what we see happening among men. It's our oath to God. It's our faith in him. It's our trusting him. It's our promise before him that we, that we will follow him, that we will be his. So because of your oath, submit to the authority in wisdom, Solomon says. It, it enables us to avoid evil. Now Solomon goes on and, and he makes the point that, that the one who does what the king says is not going to find any evil. The intent seems to be, the intent seems to be that, not that bad things won't ever happen to you. The intent seems to be that what will happen is, if you don't break the commands of the king, you won't suffer the consequences of breaking the commands of a king. If you don't drive drunk, you probably won't ever get arrested for driving drunk. Now, we know we live in a broken world. In fact, he's going to speak to injustice in just a minute. We know that it happens often that people are falsely accused and falsely convicted. The, the true crime stories that are on, on Netflix today or on, on uh, television today, they're, they're a big piece of why we, we, we recognize this. We, we recognize that people are often accused and often convicted unjustly. But on the whole... On the whole, just generally speaking with wisdom, not speaking specifically to every circumstance, Solomon's he's right. If you avoid doing evil, you likely will not pay the consequence for doing evil. 
If you submit to the laws of the land, you likely won't be arrested for breaking the laws of the land. There are exceptions, I know. But we can avoid evil if we'll submit to the authority. There's a time and a place to submit, both because of our oath to God and practically to avoid evil. But third, he points out that even that ruler, that evil ruler, will die. He says it in verse 8, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Now, he's already said the king's, what the king says goes. This is a sovereign king. This is a king who speaks and things happen. But even this man has no power to retain his spirit. He cannot keep living just because he says so. No power over the day of death. I came across a story of a king. I can't remember where, where he was at. I think it was, uh, I'm not going to remember. But there was this king that set his throne out, out, out at the beach on the ocean and commanded the waves to stop and it didn't work. How foolish would you feel? As foolish as you deserve to feel, right? Like we have no ability to stand in front of things like that. We have no power against it, especially not death. Wisdom says, I can outlast this guy. I can, I can live past this guy. I'll look for the opportune time to act. I'll look for the opportune way to act. I'll look for the just way to act and know that there's coming a day this man will die. And when he dies, he faces justice. That's the point of the verses that come. Wisdom enables us to, to submit to authority, even when it's authority that's difficult to submit to. And I would just suggest, going back to the verses from 1 Peter, when Peter wrote to those people, he makes the point about the governing authorities. He says, submit to all the governing authorities, all the institutions of man. Then he comes down and he speaks about masters and slaves, and he speaks about not submitting to the one who's easy to submit to. What glory does that bring to God? What grace does that demonstrate? It demonstrates a grace from God when we're able to submit because we believe so fully in God, even to those who are difficult to submit to. Now, I face that. I, I'll, I, this, uh, this isn't my notes, so just deal with it. I, I hope it's helpful. It strikes, strikes me. I dealt with that when I worked for a boss that I couldn't, I, well, I, it's not that I couldn't stand him. I just disagreed with every decision he made. <laughs> he, was a fine, he was a fine guy. He's a terrible boss. And so I'm reading through 1 Peter with this group of guys, and I come to that passage about the master that, that's not easy to submit to. And the Lord just breaks me in two. Here I am behind this guy's back, doing everything I can, to not, not intentionally disrupting the flow of work and not intentionally purposefully seeking to be a thorn in his side, but that's what was happening because I disrespected him so badly. What does that do to a Christian witness when everybody you know knows you're Christian and you're the jerk that's being divisive at every turn? You got no faith in God to deal with that man. You feel like you're the one that's going to be his judge, jury, and executioner. That's not faith. That's idolatry. That's wisdom run amok. That's me thinking I know better than God. When that man was put in my life to sanctify me and humble me before a God who would call me to places my flesh didn't want to go. Because giving up my sin has not been an easy process. But as I have been reminded over and over through a number of conversations this week, I was a radically sinful person. 
but God. What do I want people to know about the God that I submit to? Wisdom. Wisdom enables us to submit under this kind of authority. And it enables us to, to wait patiently for justice. And this is the next points in verses 10 through 13. You, you skip down, you just we'll look down a little bit further. I see the wicked buried. They had, they had been going out and going to the places of righteousness and the, and, and, and the holy place, and they were being praised. They, these wicked people that from the outside looked like they were righteous, and, and, and here they're coming in and out, and everybody's like, oh, look at these righteous, holy people. Look at their fancy gowns. Look at the money they're giving. Look at the works they're doing. They're holy people, but inside they are rotten to the core. They are wicked. They, they, they offer lift service to God. They don't mean it when they offer sacrifices. Everything they do is for their own gain. They are a wicked people. And Solomon could see through it. In his wisdom, he could see through it. And he's like, they are getting the accolades and the praise of people. But I saw the wicked buried. Oh, they don't get away with it. They don't, they, they, they don't get away with it. It's vanity, it's futility, it, 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 it's all a show, it's surface, it's not truth. And because, but because this is the way we do, I mean, we're, you just consider it in, in, in terms today. We, 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 have our, we have our celebrities that are running around and everybody's looking to be just like them. They're running around acting foolish at every turn and people just want to be like them. They're, they're making money. They're getting rich. They've got, they got notoriety. They've got followers on Twitter, friends on Facebook. That's what I want. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children, the children of man is set fully to do evil. We chase after these things because we think they're getting ahead. We think the wicked are being treated and, and rewarded for their wickedness. We, we're upset with this injustice. But wisdom reminds us, this wise observation reminds us, there is a day of reckoning coming. There is a day coming where they will die and they will be buried and they will face God. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, this is verse, uh, verse 12, though a sinner uh, does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will they prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. He doesn't add a second to his life. He doesn't make his life better by cheating. The wicked will pay. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. In fact, there's this passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 19, where, 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 where Paul is speaking to the church after he's expressed the gospel, and now he's calling them to live in light of the gospel. He gives them this instruction Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We are not judge 
jury, and executioner. It is not our role to exercise God's vengeance. It belongs to him and him alone. Wisdom enables us to wait patiently for his justice. And it provides for us an ability to do what I think is being pictured here, forgiveness. Forgiveness. The reason we're able to forgive is because we know that the cross brings justice. If we will not forgive someone's sin against us, someone's injustice against us, it's because we don't trust that the cross has dealt with it, either by paying for that sin itself or by condemning it forever before God. I don't forgive people because I'm so great and glorious and good. I forgive people because I, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, because I know that Jesus has already done so. Who am I to hold it against them? I don't seek to forgive even non-believers, non-Christians, because I think that I'm so high and mighty and I'm better than them. I seek to forgive them in this life that I might maintain a witness because I know that the cross condemns them to an eternal hell in which they will find they have to pay justice on their own. That's to be pitied more than it is to be avenged. Why would we do this? Wisdom enables us to wait patiently for justice. Even though it doesn't happen speedily, it enables us to wait patiently for justice. Wisdom enables us to respond to God reverently. Verses 12 and 13 again, we're, we're, we're looking at this place where, where, where Solomon calls us to fear God. It's going to be well with the one who fears him, but it's not going to be the one who doesn't. Now, every time, we've already come against, up against the, this term, fear God, several times already, and, and we've always kind of wrestled with it, but here's the act of wisdom, is that we begin to see that there is a trembling fear. We don't want to wipe it out too fast. We don't want to rid the word fear of that trembling fear. God is a mighty and awesome God, a terrible God, who would want to face his wrath. But for those who fear him, they find his mercy. There is a reality that in his grace and his mercy, we no longer have to tremble. But we can stand in awe. We can revere. We can reverently respect this powerful God. Wisdom is what enables us to walk in that tension between terror and worship. Wisdom is what enables us to stand in front of a throne of the God who actually stops the waves in their tracks and not run and hide and cower. Wisdom is what allows us to gather in this place on this very day and with impotent and little finite words sing to an eternal creator because he longs to hear it from us. Wisdom enables us to respond to God reverently. And Solomon's talking about the benefit of wisdom. It is going to be well with those. 
is going to go well for those who fear him. And in old covenant terms, you need to hear this, you need to know this. In old covenant terms, that obedience would be met with blessing. Like that was the whole perspective. If I do well, God will bless me. Like there's almost a prosperity feel to it. If I do the right things of ABC, God's going to do these things. In new covenant terms, we now stand in this place in which we understand that I can't fully obey, you can't fully obey. We are all sinners and the passions of the flesh wage war against our soul. That's Peter's words. But we know in wisdom, it is the obedience of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of the message of the cross that we read about a minute ago. It is the obedience of Jesus Christ that has bought our blessings and makes it secure. See, it's wisdom that enables us to seek out a God that's fearsome, that we might worship him because we know that through Christ we have been blessed with the ability to know him and worship him. Wisdom enables us to respond reverently to God. Wisdom enables us, the fourth thing I would point to, wisdom enables us to be joyful recipients of God's gifts in verse uh, 14 and 15, Solomon comes down, and again, there's this vanity that takes place on the earth, the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. Like righteous people not getting what it appears they deserve and wicked people not getting what they deserve but getting what they don't deserve. He said, this is vanity. I commend joy for man for nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink, be joyful. See, wisdom enables us to be, rejo- to be joyful recipients of God's gifts. Solomon, he comes back to this point. He's made it over and over through the book. In fact, there's this huge theme of of Solomon's teaching that is about joy. In his real view, his, his realistic view of this life under the sun, he's saying, take what you've got and see it as a gift from God because everything you have in this life, you don't deserve. If you have a job, even if you don't like it, At least you got a job. At least you're working. You got food to eat? I don't like peanut butter. Hated peanut butter growing up. My mom fed me peanut butter every day of my young life. I'd open that brown paper bag. Peanut butter. I mean, it was on bread with some jelly, but still it was... (laughs) All I could think about was the peanut butter. Smell it coming up out of that bag. Absolutely disgusting. I don't know what I thought I deserved, but I certainly thought I deserved more than peanut butter. There's no way to be grateful when all you can think about is what you wish you had. See, wisdom enables us to sit down and be grateful for as much or as little as we have because we recognize everything we have comes from God's hand and it is his gift. I was reminded this week, just this week, I was reminded just how stark. If you struggle with this, if you're a person that wrestles with this, just let me give you this reminder. I was reminded there's a group of guys meets on Thursday mornings. We're reading through a book called uh, uh, the, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment uh, by Jeremiah Burroughs. And, and there was this point he made in, in the reading this week. If you struggle with being grateful, thinking that this is just too hard, I don't deserve this, this kind of thing. He says, just remember this, you could be in hell. So the next time you want to grumble about what you think you deserve, what you think you should get, how much you think you should have, just remember this. You could be in hell. I'm not trying to be harsh. 
It's time to be real. Wisdom enables us to be grateful to an eternal God who gives gifts even to the undeserving. There's all kind of benefit to wisdom. It is better to be wise than to be a fool, but there is a limit. And you see it in these last verses, verses 17, 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on the earth, how neither day nor night no one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work. What is wisdom's limit? Wisdom cannot find out what God has hidden in mystery. You will never be wise enough to discern the work and will of God unless he reveals it. Your wisdom will not make you God. It will not allow you to live independently of God. It will not enable you to live by your own authority or determine how things should go. Wisdom cannot find out what God has hidden in mystery, but now what God has hidden in the days of old, he has revealed in Jesus Christ. There's still much we can't find out. There's still much we cannot know. We won't know. We don't know what we'll be like in eternity. We don't have a clue of what it exactly will look like. We, I mean, just consider the Rocky Mountains and their majesty for just a moment. What will they look like when God has made all things new? I can only imagine the beauty and the glory of an earth that's not been, been pressed down under the futility of our sin. I can't imagine how, how it would be to live in a body that is not tempted by sin, that is not turning at, or, or, or pressing against my soul at every turn, seeking to cause me to run off, seeking to lead me off away from the God who created and saved. What will it be like to live in a place where temptation has no place? I can't fathom. But what God has revealed is this mystery that I think Solomon is alluding to, and that is the gospel. And so Paul, at the end of Romans, this great exposition, this greatest, maybe the most detailed explanation of what God has been doing in time, in this life under the sun, shows us how he has revealed this mystery in Christ. He closes that gospel, uh, that, that, that book of the Bible off by saying this, Romans 16, 25 through 27, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To, only, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, we get to know what's coming next because of Jesus Christ. He said, place your faith in me and you will not die, but you will live. What that's going to be, I, I, this is only imagination can know. I can't know the day and time it's coming. I can't know what it's going to look like. I don't, can't know what my body's going to be exactly like, but I can know this. You can know this through faith in Jesus Christ. The mystery has been revealed that through faith in Jesus Christ, you will live with God forever and the justice that you deserve will be set on him and you will stand with him forever in glory isn't that amazing yeah wisdom has a limit but it's really helpful to know these things in wisdom and enjoy its benefit god's gift of wisdom benefits us in this life under the sun but wisdom alone can't provide what we need for the life above it. But where wisdom is limited, 
your God is not. So what? What do I do? What do we do? Listen to James. If you lack wisdom, if any of you lack wisdom, ask for it. God will supply it. Trust his wise plan. Seek after his wisdom. And then seek to live wisely. Because it's better than being a fool. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We are but creatures. You, our creator. And yet, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our rejection, in spite of our folly, you've made a way that we can walk in your wisdom. And so I pray for that, Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room, that they would know it, that they would seek to grow in it, and seek to live like it. And if there be one in this room today, whether it be through the practice of religion and putting on a show that's a sham, or whether it's one just sitting in this room that has been struck with the reality that they've never trusted you, that they've never feared you rightly, that they've never exercised any faith in you, I would pray, Father, that, that you'd open their eyes to their foolishness so that they could take this first step of wisdom, believing you. Would you work in our hearts today? Spirit, would you... Would you bring us into truth? It's these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.